So the week had started on a hopeful note the previous Sunday. When Jesus had marched into Jerusalem and people had lined the streets and they were waving palm branches and they were proclaiming him as the Messiah who had come to usher in the victorious kingdom of God. But that excitement was short-lived. And it was now Thursday evening, the night before his crucifixion. And Jesus was feeling the weight of what he knew was coming. So in Matthew 26, as Jesus and his disciples were walking together to their favorite garden spot on the Mount of Olives that overlooked the city, he warns them. He says, to truly follow me is to follow me to a cross on which you die. So be aware, get ready, prepare your hearts for this hardship because following me, it doesn't happen through a man-centered vigilance or force of will or resolve or emotional hype or trust in your own anything. But following me to a risen tomb can only happen by having a sober trust that I am your righteousness and I have faithfully carried out God's promises and plans. So jump in with me at verse 31. It says this, Then Jesus said to them, he predicts here a, a lapse, a gap in their man-centered resolve. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. You will all, speaking to the disciples, even tonight, you will all have a lapse, a gap in your faithfulness. Your own stick to and your ability to pick yourselves up by your bootstraps and, and to move forward by, by force of will, that's going to fail, Jesus says. You will all fall away because of me this night. And then he says, for it is written, this is Zechariah, 13, verse 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, Jesus quotes here from Zechariah 13, verse 7. He says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's Zechariah 13, 7. And he quotes that because in the context of Zechariah here, where the people of God had been lacking faith and they needed cleansing from sin, it says, rather surprisingly, that God would cleanse the people and restore their faith, not by striking out against them, but by striking out against his shepherd, whom he, whom God, had appointed. We track with what Jesus is saying here. Which means here, in Matthew 26, verse 31, when he says, when he says, all y'all, that's the second person plural here in East Tennessee, when all y'all will fall away because of me, and then he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is, is not only predicting his own death, as he had done many times before, but he is also predicting the result that the disciples would fall away and they would be scattered, which apparently was part of God's plan for how they would end up coming to faith. And yet, look at verse 32. Notice that Jesus also gives the disciples a note of hope. 
in his resurrection that was to come and the subsequent regathering of the disciples in Galilee. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But even though all you're going to de- all of you are going to deny me, even though you'll deny me after I'm raised up, notice that's in the passive to make clear that God the Father and God the Spirit are the ones doing the raising of Jesus. He says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The disciples clearly didn't realize that as he said this, he was talking about his own resurrection, but he was going to be raised from the dead and they would be gathered again. They must have missed that plan and purpose <laughs> Because, as we can clearly see in the next verse, they didn't see it. Not yet, at least. Peter, for one, couldn't get past Jesus' prediction of their falling away. Look at verse 33. Peter, who is usually considered the main upfront leader of the disciples, Peter answered him, answered Jesus, Though they all fall away because of you, even if all these Other weak sauce, pea-brained, pathetic losers abandon you, Jesus. He says, I will never fall away. Peter puffs himself up here and declares his own awesomeness. He says, St. Peter the Great, at your service, my Lord. Even if all these other weak sauce losers, the rest of these disciples, even if they abandon you, Jesus, I, I will never fall away. I am the exception to what you just predicted, Jesus. I will remain faithful, even if the rest do not. I mean, listen, I know that, that every single thing that you've ever said is 100% true. And that your quote from the Old Testament there in Zechariah is therefore likely a pretty good indication of its veracity and its dependability. And I should probably not bet against what you said on this one, but I'm going to go with me. Peter thinks he is ready for whatever was to come his way. So Jesus said to him, look at verse 34. Truly, I tell you, which is rabbi language for take this to the bank as something that has the authority of God. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you, speaking to Peter, will deny me three times. Peter, this prophecy that all of the disciples will fall away this night, not only includes, but especially applies to you. Now, at this point, you think, if I'm Peter, if you're Peter, we humbly submit and say, "Um, okay, Lord, sure. But no, no, no. Peter doubles down. Peter said to him, he said to Jesus, look at verse 35. "Even, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus tells Peter and the disciples about the kind of faith commitment that's involved in following him. He says that they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Jesus said versions of that kind of phrase a number of times. And he used the word deny before. And here in Matthew 26, 35, Peter uses that same word deny here. He says, even if I must die along with you, Jesus, 
I will not deny you. In fact, Peter says this with an intensifying prefix on the front of the word deny as a way to emphasize even more vehemently than the first time he said it, that under no circumstances, even under the threat of death, under no circumstances would he ever deny Jesus. I would rather die than deny you, Jesus. And all the disciples said the same. Oh, yeah, Jesus, we're all in. We've got this. We're with you. We're on your side. Go team Jesus. But when they arrive at the garden called Gethsemane, notice that even Jesus' most intimate circle of his closest followers, the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, notice that they show themselves almost instantly to be far weaker than their claim. Look at verse 36 and following here. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. That's on the Mount of Olives. It's probably a garden there in the Mount of Olives. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Peter, James, and John, leaving rest of the disciples behind and taking with him his inner circle of three, he began to be sorrowful, full of sorrow and troubled. Then he said to them, He said to the three, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Stay up with me and pray, Peter, James, John. Stay and pray with me. Even in his darkest moment, when he knew he would be facing the cross on which he would experience the full weight of the wrath of the Father against sin, The humanity of Jesus is on display. He wanted his own friends to stay up with him and to pray. So, verse 39, going a little farther, Matthew reports, he fell on his face, which is Matthew making clear that that Jesus had bowed in, in the lowest posture possible as an expression, not just of the heavy weight of the moment, but also his full submission to the Father. And so Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If only there could be another way to atone for the sins of your people, Lord. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Think about this. In in the face of what Jesus knew would not be normal human suffering, but would be the full weight of the wrath of the Father against sin. Jesus longed for another way of another way of accomplishing the Father's will, yet knowing there likely wouldn't be. And then immediately he makes clear by expressing his full submission to the Father that he would do his will, even if it meant a death like this. So it's Jesus' darkest and his most difficult moment. And notice what Matthew reports in the very next verse. And he came to the disciples 
and found them sleeping. He came to the three, his inner circle, his most trusted friends. The three he had asked to stay with him to pray. He came to them and found them sleeping, asleep at the wheel when he most wanted them to be a friend to share the pain with him. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? And then he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus says, you'd better get to praying now, Peter. You'd better get to praying now, friends, because tests like this aren't going away. You'll need the Spirit's power because you will soon enough be in a spiritual battle against sin. And Peter, you are frail. You are weak. You need God's power more than you can possibly see now. Well, this scene repeats two more times of Jesus praying. He says this, look at verse 42 and following there. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, if, if this cup of suffering cannot pass unless I drink it, if this cup of your judgment against sin can't pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. Notice that, that Matthew here points out a small progression in Jesus' words. It isn't if it be possible, as before, but the second time, it's if this indeed cannot pass unless I drink this cup. It's Jesus' recognition that this is how the Father wants to move forward. It's Jesus' resignation to the will of the Father that becomes clearer here. And then again, Verse 43, again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. As a further demonstration of the need for prayer to sustain us when we are weak in the flesh, they were asleep. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. There will be plenty of time to rest later on. He says, see, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas was on the way. Before this scene on the Mount of Olives, Jesus had predicted Judas would betray him now. He predicted it at the, Lord, at the Last Supper. And then he predicted to the disciples that they would betray him and they protested as if he was crazy. And then his inner circle of three almost immediately demonstrated their inability to remain faithful. And then Judas came with the Jewish leaders to arrest him. And then indeed, by the end of Matthew 26, all of this in the same chapter here, Peter would deny Jesus three times. Matthew puts together these various scenes here for us to see the weakness of the flesh without the work of God's spirit. And there's, there's one main practical application I want us to make today. 
And it's this. The truth about us in our flesh, without the Spirit of God, is that we are weak, frail, soft, and selfish traitors who do not seek God because we think we are good and worthy of trust. Just think again about Peter in Matthew 26, especially verses 33 and 35 that we looked at. Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He declared openly and publicly his faith in Christ or so as it was at the time. Even if all others abandon you, Jesus, I will never fall away. I am the exception. I will remain faithful. I don't think Peter could have known this at the time of his declaration of his own awesomeness to remain faithful no matter what. But, but, but think about what was going on when he talks back to Jesus, when he, he predicts Peter's betrayal. In response to Jesus, he is in effect saying, I alone. O perfect Messiah, who created the world and who can call down legions of angels with the word and who is without sin and who knows God the Father and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship, I alone will be the exception to your prediction of my betrayal. That, I realize, comes with the full weight and authority of the word of God. Looking back, it's clear the odds are pretty squarely stacked against Peter being correct in his assessment of himself. Which is to say, friends, which is to say that Scripture talks about pride coming before a fall. And when it does, it doesn't mean it, it comes before that other guy's fall or that it sometimes works that way. But that pride comes before our own fall and that it always works that way. The truth is, we are not the awesome and faithful and competent and amazing people we think we are. You, my friend, are not the awesome and faithful and competent and amazing person you think you are. That's just plain, not what the scripture says about the human heart. If you were so awesome, why would Jesus have to die at all? For you. Rather, what scripture says is that instead of being a pure-hearted lover of all things good who is willing to do anything and everything and, uh, to, in order to live with a perfect integrity, the scripture says your heart is selfishly bent toward wickedness and evil at the root. And while I realize this isn't exactly a feel-good Palm Sunday sermon, I want to dwell on this point a bit. Because here's something I found in myself and in dealing with people for my 48 years of life. Everybody thinks they're good and loving and caring and selfless and pure-hearted and always right until the Bible tells them differently. Just listen to a representative sample of what the scriptures say about whether we are as good and loving and caring and selfless and pure-hearted as we think we are. In the book of 1 John, it tells us 
that at a fundamental level, love comes from God. This is a truth we should understand with a more literal force than we think, as if God is the actual source and definition of love, and, and not whatever man-centered, namby-pamby, emotional drivel definition that you and I learned from rom-com movies where they fall in love in the rain. Listen to 1 John 4.10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the the propitiation, the full payment and satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. And then just a few verses later in verse 19, John says, and again, we should read this with a more literal force than we think. We love because he first loved us. We learn what love is in the first place because he shows us. What this means related to our application point here is that in our natural condition, we do not only not love God, but we don't even know what love is until we know God. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just a couple of verses later in Romans 5 and verse 10, it says, while we were enemies, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him. How? Not by our awesomeness or goodness or faithfulness or competence, but by the death of his son. Colossians 1.21 says that you were hostile in mind. Meaning that before God's spirit speaks the good news into a heart to soften it so that it can hear the good news, One's mind is set as hostile to the ways of God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things, which means the number one thing that you can say about the human heart is that it is deceitful. It's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Apart from the intervention of God, we cannot even understand our own deceitful and desperately sick hearts. In the section of Romans, where Paul has been making clear that we all deserve the wrath of God because of our sin and our unrighteousness that suppress the truth about God, he says this in Romans 3, 9 through 12. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. In John 6, 63, Jesus makes the issue clear. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. When Jesus says in Matthew twenty two thirty seven that one of the two greatest commandments is to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, perhaps the main reason why that is the case for us is that unless the Holy Spirit enters in and makes us new, our personal greatest commandment is pointedly not to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, but to love ourselves, to glorify ourselves, to protect ourselves, to pacify our own hurts and pains, and to constantly find new reasons to be offended and grievances to claim, to functionally turn all of our life's relationships and resources into one big, huge self-salvation project that comes from the deceitful idea that we are good enough to be trusted without God. Friends, our problem as humans 
is not that we are merely in need of good medicine, a nicer friend, a more thoughtful spouse, or better strategies. Rather, we have a moral problem that goes to the constituent nature of who we are as autonomous and spiritually dead trusters of self. Friends, apart from the intervention of a righteous Messiah who atones for our sins before a holy God who deserves perfection, and apart from the softening of our hearts by his Holy Spirit, the truth is we are lost and enslaved. We aren't merely sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners, because we want to. And until you stop believing the lies you tell yourself that keep you from believing what God says about you in his word, you will live under the delusion, not only that you deserve to live in a world where there's no pain and no suffering, but that you are alone in yourself, worthy of trust. Until you believe what God says about your heart, apart from his intervention, you will continue to believe the lie that you can do it, that you will be faithful, and that you are enough. When everyone else fails you, Jesus, I alone will stand. Friends, only self-centered people who do not understand their need for a savior actually believe this. Only those who do not watch and pray, as Jesus tells us, only those who do not watch and pray as if their faith depended upon it believe this. Peter's man-centered force of will lasted all of a few minutes. And he was with Jesus in the flesh, watching him do miracles, seeing every single word that he said come true. Friend, facing your own moral weakness is the beginning of experiencing a profoundly freeing truth. In fact, it's the only way to be free. When you submit to the idea that you are your own primary problem, it will drive you to a freeing and full reliance on the grace of God. The grace of God that made a full and final provision for you in Jesus. You cannot know the fullness of God's grace for you in Christ until you've realized your own depravity and need for him. So as we begin to close, I want us to consider this week this simple takeaway question. Where in your life are you still acting like a puffed up Peter? So here's the hope, friends. Even puffed up Peter learned what faith in Christ really meant. Even puffed up Peter learned what faith in Christ instead of self meant. Even after betraying the one to whom he committed himself in earnest, Peter learned faith in the Christ who was sacrificed for him. Which is to say, it is only Jesus's faithful obedience to his father's will that can secure salvation for you. In his darkest and his, his most temptation-filled moment, 
when in his own humanity, he wanted to give up and to avoid the suffering and to find another way, Jesus nevertheless prayed so that you, so that I, so that we could have salvation. He prayed, not as I will, but as you will, Father. So friend, if you will have a a sober-minded faith in the Christ who was the perfect sacrifice for your sins, acknowledging that he alone is the object of your faith and the one in whom you are placing your trust because you understand your need for him and your moral weakness and that he alone can save you, that's how you can know the security of relationship with God as your father. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, forgive us for the many ways in which we continue to tell ourselves a story about our lives that is about trust in self. Instead of continuing to see our lives as you've told us they are, as you've demonstrated to us and those who have gone before, like Peter, who learned faith through his own weakness and failure. Father, we see that in ourselves and we want to acknowledge that without your spirit making our hearts new, we do not seek after you. Without your work in our lives, drawing us to yourself, showing us who you've been for us in Jesus, being for us a perfect and fully adequate sacrifice for our sin. Without your intervention in our lives, Lord, we are without hope. And so on this week, as we think about what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and we prepare for an empty tomb, we want each one of us wherever we are in our journey with you, Lord, we want each one of us to see ourselves soberly in relation to who you are and who you were for us in Christ so that we would see ourselves accurately, that we would be people who watch and pray so that we are not dependent on our flesh, but rather your spirit. Draw us to yourself. Drive us to our knees. Help us to see how we need you from day to day. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.